Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. I, I would be delighted. I would be delighted to lead us in. Hello, everybody. It is your Horror Vanguard for the week. Uh, I am John, joined as ever by my blue-collar working man of a co-ghost. <laughs> Ash, how are you doing? Oh, I'm, do- I'm doing really good. We had a, we had a major podcaster leak today, uh, and it t- took me a while to use my various wrenches to to fix this kind of podcaster plumbing problem. I mean, I mean that is mostly most most of podcasting revolves around wrenches of various sizes. Um, you, you would be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> we're not we're not we're not one of those big podcasting firms you know this is a family concern a mom it's and just... pop podcast <laughs> uh and we are very excited to be joined once again by a guest in the hv crypt uh you may remember him from several other previous hv appearances john leave it is here hello sir hello am i i'm i'm glad to embrace you with all my tendrils <laughs> <laughs> You you have now been on the show enough to earn the HV Challenge Koopa coin. <laughs> Not for individual sale. Uh, no, no. Uh, I'm I'm trying to remember them all now. So, uh, which which episodes have you been on for, John? You you were on for High Rise. I remember that one. Yep, High Rise, Invasion uh, of the Body Snatchers. Oh yes, of the Body Snatchers, A Little Shop of Horrors. Great episode. Oh, if a plant yep. is from outer space, I'm here. You know, really, that that's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I feel at this point we should appoint you the official uh, horror vanguard horticulture correspondent. Yeah, are, are you our resident astro horticulturalist? Uh, oh, but we, we are we are here actually to discuss another um, another another plant based horror film. Um, we are here to talk about 1993's very very strange film, uh, Super Mario Brothers, which I I believe. Although I'm not certain, uh, is perhaps inspired by a quote-unquote videoed game. Uh, not not familiar. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. I'm, not fa- I'm not familiar with this. So, um, well, if it's it's not Resident Evil, so we don't we don't so, naturally yeah, understand I, this. Yeah. I, it's it's all very new to me. But I am I am quivering with mycological anticipation <laughs> as I ask my dear friend Ash. If they would ha- kindly explain to me, to John, to everybody listening, what Super Mario Brothers the movie is all about. The core and perhaps ultimate discussion of any game-to-movie adaptation is how to translate the untranslatable idiosyncrasies of play to the silver screen. Noise is defined as any unwanted sound. There are many paths to walk. But the fool's errand is to attempt to extract the narrative of the game from its play. The two are eternally bound within each other and collapse back and forth, forming little discursive riptides as they flow with and against each other. To evoke the id in idiosyncratic, my experience with Super Mario Bros. is nearly anti-narratological. SMB is an aesthetic a spirit that takes earthly form in a play space designed equally for open exploration as it is for breakneck speed and precision. In my play, I experience artificial deaths again and again, 
each life burnt away by accident, through exhaustion, and in search of some perfectible way of defining my own knowing. Yet, what happens when we gain control of this cycle by letting go of its antecedents and precepts? To play a Kaizo life, to laugh as our synthetic samsara navigates this troll level eternal. We race through goal after goal as they unfold in an endless series of jolly screens, enrobing us with memory like a comet burning through the atmosphere. Jason Babak Mohageg wrote in his ethereal tome Omnicide, Mania, Fatality, and the Future in Delirium. And yet what does it mean to become obligated to a lost glimmer? Neither a futural ideology of permanence nor a god structure of infinity, but rather a come-and-gone ethereality, the mania of the passing gleam. To touch a falling star, and know that while, for the briefest moment, I will glow with a perfectible invulnerability, I will spend most of that time enraptured with the sensation and racing to do so very little. I will accomplish only that which I could have done without it, but in a way that could have never come to pass in its absence. Such is the nature of being powered up by the celestial, the fungal, and through all touches divine. As Carl Sagan once noted, we are, mind and body, composed of cosmic elements. There are pieces of stars within us all. What potential there must exist inside each and every living thing that we are walking, talking, loving stars. Perhaps Shigeru Miyamoto, the creator of Super Mario, put it best when he said, What if on a crowded street you look up and see something appear that should not, given what we know, be there? You either shake your head and dismiss it, or you accept that there is much more to this world than we think. Perhaps it really is a doorway to another place. If you choose to go inside, you may find unexpected things. Open doors to unexpected passing gleams as we discuss Super Mario Bros. Ah, uh, yes. Let us let us jump aboard the the asteroid that is hurtling towards Brooklyn. Um, let can I start with just a a simple question for the both of you? Is this a bad movie? Absolutely not, but not for the reasons <laughs> it thinks it's a bad movie, which I, I can go into. I don't want to launch right into Sontag at the very stop, <laughs> top of the hour, but we're going to get there. No, oh, no, oh, no. Don't, don't so hold back, fun. John. Like, let's let's do this. Let's let's do this. What do we what, tell me more to expand? OK, well, there are many definitions of camp and. Going by like the Sontagian definition of camp, camp is failed seriousness. Now, the director of this movie desperately wanted to make Blade Runner. And he wanted mm-hmm. like to the point where he poached a lot of the creative staff for this movie. The writers and the producers, the producers who had never made a movie before, by the way, wanted to make a fun movie for kids because it's about a children's video game. These things are in opposition. So on on one hand, you have Bob Hopkins doing some admittedly very charming slapstick, even though he has gone on record by saying he hated this movie and was like continuously drunk during Mm -hmm. the filming. But on the other hand, you have Fiona Shaw, one of the great living actors of the British stage, Mm -hmm. having scenes with Samantha Morton, also another great actress, in which she's like tying her hair and doing like dino Rebecca to her. (laughs) And it's like this, and there's this weird incestuous tone because Koopa, who is 
basically Donald Trump will get into it. it he's also a germaphobe. He has idiot children. Is like trying to seduce Samantha Morton playing Princess Daisy because he was in love with her mother. And it's all like, it's all in the service of a movie that also has someone scream, soon the universe will be mine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, that sounds about right. It, it <laughs> makes perfect sense. And like, this is where we, th- it's a dialectic, Okay. On one hand, we have goofy slapsticky kids movie where people have funny Brooklyn accents and there are monkeys. And on the other hand, you have this weirdly very serious failed melodrama with all these elaborate costumes and set designs and backstory and world building and creep, you know, having creepy motions toward like the beloved family pet. And it's just like, it's, it is camp. Why is Lena not a drag queen? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I, 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 I totally agree with that reading, right? Like, this is... It, and, and, like, the source material, too. Like, this is, this is like, camp in the extreme. The source material is, like, a, a pastel-colored, laid-back children's game that got turned into failed Blade Runner. No, see, I don't think it's failed Blade Runner. I just think they accidentally created Blade Runner for nine-year-olds. <laughs> Because the two things were in such opposition, but both parties wanted their particular vision to succeed, and they both tried really, really hard at it, and they ended up creating something compellingly weird, but also entertaining. And okay, so I, I did some, I did some, <laughs> I did some research into the writing history of this. The original wasn't the original writer the say the the writer of Rain Man. Yep. Uh, uh, and wrote a movie that was basically uh, was was the script was kind of like codenamed Drain Man because it was basically the same film. <laughs> oh my uh, god! I, it was then handed off uh, to a couple of British comedy writers um, who were mostly known for really well regarded British sitcoms, and their script was apparently what got Bob Hoskins to sign up and do this in the first place, and then. <laughs> All of like, so it had like loads of social satire in it. It's because like there's chunks of this which are not just fail or kind of like pseudo Blade Runner, but like pseudo Mad Max. Um, yep. It's like it's very Mad Max influenced. And uh, all of that gets kind of watered down. So this is, it's like this weird hybridized kind of monstrous progeny that's been stitched together from like, you can, you can read this film archaeologically and you can excavate the different points at which different people try to like impose some order on this nebulous teeming mass of fungal possibility. So this is, this is, I think something that's so important to the formalism of this movie, right? This desire to impose order, right? There's like, when you read kind of like pop cultural coverage of the super Mario bros movie, there, there, there is this kind of like fevered yearning urge to make this movie sit comfortably into some kind of category to like to to make it rest uh, uh to wit i bought a dvd copy of this movie for seven dollars at a used media store and uh none of the other dvds had this by the way this has a note taped to the front of it uh <clears throat> and this just came this is why i bought the dvd i picked it up and i saw this note and i'm like okay i need to own this weird like cultural effusions uh but it reads why isn't this movie a classic I mean, aside from the whole Nintendo tie-in, 
Were you aware Super Mario Bros. was a video game? You got Bob Hopkins, John Leguizamo, Dennis Hopper, who delivers each line with the same stoic gusto you'd expect from Blue Velvet, Mojo Nixon, the drummer from Sonic Youth, who's in a billion movies. The movie itself is the kind of totally palatable boilerplate that was all over the 90s, but is absent from modern movies. And I, one, I, I totally disagree with the write-up that came taped to my copy of Super Mario Bros. <laughs> but like, and, and I, there's a lot of random capitalization. I tried to put the emphasis in there. But the thing, the thing that I love that is like, like it ends with calling this like the kind of boilerplate you expect from like, you know, like 90s kids movies. And like, this is, this is, this is 100% not 90s kids movie boilerplate. Like this is, this is a, a freakish aberration of 90s kids movie boilerplate. Yeah, no, it's it's so like, like I said before, the thing that makes it bizarre is because every single part of it is in tension with every other part. But each part is trying so hard, like the set designers have made a completely compelling, wild, alternate carnivore filled version of like Times Square, where instead of porno shows, there's like XX mammal shows. There are like mm-hmm. little <laughs> there are little details like when Lena, you know does a shot glass of uh, tequila there's like a still screaming like snake in it that she just devours again kids oh are- we're talking about that snake in length later <laughs> yeah oh yeah and uh, it's it's compellingly strange and i when i rewatched it this week and i have to say i'm so glad we're doing this before the updated animated one comes out and just turns all the dvds of this movie into goo oh yeah a hundred percent hundred percent. They they will not survive the coming kind of like apocalypse. Yeah, no, it, it'll have to be buried underground until like conditions are right again. Oh, just just like a fungus, we have to we have to return this to the earth to let it bloom. Mm. Well, uh, should we should we talk a little bit about the the formal qualities of cyberpunk, especially uh, cyberpunk for kids? Well, yeah. Well, as I um, as I mentioned in in my essay about this movie, Koopaism is capitalism. Uh, you have all of it, there's like this nonstop political campaign around King Koopa, but he also seems to be the head of a major corporation that controls all the water and the air. Uh, very Mad Max, also very Tank Girl. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Yep. yeah. He's he's always in a crisp blue business suit. Uh, all, citizens are encouraged to both like surveil and rat on each other, but also like everyone's involved in crime. People keep trying to steal things. <laughs> uh, everything's like cloaked in in neon and spikes, and there's constant steam everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's there's sort of like one corporation, one law, and. You know, what they're trying to do, you know, the crux of the movie is that the ruler of this world, who is now disgusted by it, wants to do like a hostile corporate takeover of planet Earth. Perfect. Unheard of. Yeah. And why does he want to do it? Because they've wasted all their water and air and their planet is dying. <laughs> it's almost it's almost as if this is some kind of allegory, perhaps a perhaps a commentary, if you will. So I I, th- I think this is really interesting, right? Because c- cyberpunk is such an interesting place to take Super Mario, which in, in and of itself is very almost anti-cyberpunk. It's very bucolic, and it's it's themes in general design, right? It's it's very much the sensation of 
laying in a field and enjoying nature and oh there's a dinosaur that's your friend and a dinosaur wizard that's not your friend um but i think one of the things for me that kind of always fails about cyberpunk and almost fails across the board is that cyberpunk is just too cool like all of the bad things about cyberpunk are things we've already had for decades now corporations running governments environmental catastrophes yeah companies that can decide when you live or die with a snap of their fingers like we've already always had that, but what we don't have is like I can't go down to like the cool new arm store and get like an arm that's got like a laser and a radio in it, you know. And, and like, like I don't have a hover car, and I can't like I can't hack the mainframe using a cable. You, you on can't the back do cool crimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's just and, all the same board. It's just still stealing loaves of bread from Target, right? There's no cool crime. Yeah, and I've always said, look, I always knew we would get in the cyberpunk dystopia. I just thought we'd have cooler clothes. And that, oh my god, yeah. yes, yeah. Uh, it's it's very much. It's very. I I I'm watching this and I'm just sort of like, this is just New York, right? <laughs> well, no, is, well, no, it's 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 the New York of the '90s, and even when you're in the real yep. world, New York, it, it kind of it's now nostalgic for me because I'm like, oh, that's the New York I grew up in. Yeah, mm-hmm. like <laughs> yeah. even just like the everyday fashions are very like in living color. <laughs> <laughs> and then, oh like, my god, Dino Hatton in living color would be a show I'd watch the hell out of. But like when you do get to Dino Hatton, like what I talk about, like the amount of the amount of giving a damn, at least in like certain parts of this film, the costumes in this movie are incredible. <laughs> Every time they're supposed to be like lace or sequins or like piping, it's like crystals or rocks or uh, daggers. Mm-hmm. There, there's spikes on everything. Koopa has like a black snakeskin blazer. This is this is when Disco Elysium looking ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I respect I respect a villain that appreciates uh, good tailoring. Yeah, and it's even and like see, this- I really like. Oh, go on, go on, go on. Oh, no, I was just saying, like, even the side characters, like, you know, the little old woman who turns out to be, like, a stick em up Paris. Like, her uh, her shawl has a clasp that's a, a gold bone or, like, big – all mm-hmm. of the all the earrings people wear are dinosaur bones. Like, it's – but they've been, like, chrome-plated. It's just – it's – it's perfect. I, I love I love this fashion so much because it's, it's one of the things that I think is, like, supremely successful about this movie – and like like the, the Super Mario Bros. games have such a defined and clearly realized aesthetic. And and to convert that into live action cinema, you have to also like have a clearly defined aesthetic. And the fashion in this movie, like like yeah, like the the sets themselves are just like it's like Mad Max and Cyberpunk stuff, and like it's not very anything. Well, no, but, but they like, also the clothing. They... Wow, no. yeah. Oh, just like going back to the set design, when you're in like Koopa Tower, which is just the World Trade Center, whoo boy, think about that for a second. Uh, All of the interiors (laughs) are made up to kind of look like you put into 3D the castle dungeon levels of the first game. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. everything's everything's spiky, everything's blocks, there's like occasional bursts of flame. It's it's very nearly abstract and kind of Patrick (laughs) Nagel-y. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean- I think you you bring up a very important point here, John. So, like Ash, as the as the resident gamer of of the show, um, <laughs> what do you think of this strictly in terms of an adaptation of a pre existing video game property? 
I, I mean, like this, this goes back to the pricey, right? Like games, you, you almost can't adapt a game into a, a non-interactive piece of media because the, the game is defined by like what makes a game a game. It's that you can play, you know, like, like that is the thing that is the game. It's the play space and you can't, I mean, you can play with cinema, right? You can play with novelizations, but you can't play nearly to the degree with which you can play with any type of gaming. And and so, like, every time you kind of translate a, a, a movie... Like, there's, there's a scene in the... Um, um, <clears throat> oh, my God. What is that game? Doom. Um, there's a scene in the Doom movie that's at the end, right before they roll the end credits where they, they switch to a POV first-person view and they, like, recreate the experience of playing Doom just before the movie ends. And, like, like it's such a it's such an interesting decision to make, to be like, okay, we're going to give you something that is, like, as close to the feeling of play as we can. And in this one, it's... it's mm. uh, And this is... um So one of the things that Shigeru Miyamoto wanted to do with Super Mario when he first started creating these characters is, like, in the Japanese manga tradition... Characters will, like, appear in other mangas and they'll take on different roles and, like, they're kind of, like, lore and characters will change when they show up in different, like, properties and storylines. And so, like, it's, it was always a sandbox with, with like, toys in it that you can play with. And I think that this movie kind of weirdly is extremely successful because it takes all the toys uh, of Super Mario and puts on different clothes for them and puts them in a different setting. You know, this is this is Mario Tennis the movie you know it's just translating <laughs> mario mirror shades <laughs> Actually, before we get off fashion i just did have one other note um when they mm-hmm. do finally get their iconic like super mario yep outfits uh mario the older one has a traditional british like working man's flat cap mm-hmm. but yep. john leguizamo luigi the younger one has a baseball cap you gotta you gotta stay hip you you gotta you gotta keep them in their respective generations. Yeah, no, it's just again, like someone was clearly like, okay, they're gonna no one's wa- no one's gonna correct anything I do, so I'm just gonna do the most of what I want to do. <laughs> so, so I want, I'm really glad you brought up their kind of like classic Super Mario Brothers outfits, because I think like that, that that's one of the things for me where like, um, I was gonna bring this up later in the formalism zone, but um, Shigeru Miyamoto again, the creator of Super Mario. He was asked what he felt about this movie when it came out and right, you know, like one one would expect him to be irate with a burning anger, but he was just kind of a little disappointed and he was disappointed because they didn't go hard enough. Like, <laughs> like he, he wanted them like if you're going to do cyberpunk Mario and make it weird, you have to go all the way. And, and he felt that this movie flinched at its appointed task. And I think that the classic Super Mario Brothers outfits are a good example of that. Because I'm imagining, like, I love Bertha's outfit in this movie with all those giant spikes and it's so intimidating. And, like, what a wonderful way to try and translate a character that's just just like a giant living bullet, you know? And, like, you know, I was imagining, like, okay, what if Mario had, like, a sick, a sick like, biker jacket that's, like, you know, like, crimson red covered in dinosaur spikes and, like, you know, they looked, like, cyberpunk as hell, you're right they do flinch a bit at the end but like translating the ability to super jump into like oh no that's great yeah like monster like moon boots that look like they have teeth Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh that that that's one of the most successful things in the movie too like the the, the, he's literally jump man how are we gonna do that well what if they had like 
boots that jumped really high. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's. I love that in some in some ways it makes so so many interesting choices, and then in some ways it's just like very very immediately obvious. Like <laughs> you know we've got let's create this entire world, but mm-hmm. uh, we're also going to make some of the most obvious creative decisions that we possibly can because otherwise this whole thing is just going to start to get unmanageable. Well, that's the other like feeling of the movie. It feels like at any one point it's going to go off the tracks and become a different movie. That I, in my personal experiences, that's always almost always when Dennis Hopper is on the screen. <laughs> yep. He he is playing it so straight because I think again he realized he's playing mid career Donald Trump and he mm-hmm. nails him. He like, knew. He knew. He knew what he was doing. <laughs> and it's like. Some of his more creepy intonations, his germophobia, his idiotic children he keeps sending on missions. The fact that, like all New York City stories, this is a story about real estate. <laughs> so true. We will. We, we even will... get that line right, right at the beginning when 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 Mario Mario's just talking about his rent. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're like three months behind on their rent and. Uh... The whole the whole point everything revolves around property development. Yeah, and the whole plot is kicked off because uh Koopa's human equivalent in the real world, who is also a greasy Italian uh no, not Italian, <laughs> Queens. Greasy Queens. You cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> uh once again we are gonna be forced to issue an apology to the uh anti Italian defamation league. Uh <laughs> please. We'll send them in- <laughs> We'll, yeah, we'll send them a gift basket of, yeah. you know, pasta bazool. Uh, please take us off your boycott <laughs> list. <laughs> no, it's like he, oh, he's a dear. property developer and he was developing this property where NYU students had found dinosaur bones. So there was this mm-hmm. like, you know, standoff between them. But it was the drilling, the illegal digging that the real estate developer was doing that unearthed like this door to the dinosaur dimension. And it's just like, mm-hmm. yeah, that would happen in, in uh, downtown Brooklyn. A property, de- a property developer would open the gates of hell, effectively. It's 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 really thematically appropriate too, right? Because like I, you know, one like the the, the history of the land that New York City currently rests upon, it, it's all of these different spaces and different like, especially in contemporary media, like different traditions of depiction phasing in and out of each other. And this movie is multiple different stories phasing in and out of each other, competing aesthetics, fighting with each other. Like, like, and even, like, I think this ties into, like, there's a lot of weird body horror stuff going on here. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, the definitely. whole de-evolution de- uh, de- process where you mm-hmm. get reduced to your most basic components. That scene freaked me out as a kid when we, when we watch Mojo Nixon's head get de-evolved into a Goomba. <laughs> yeah, he turns into Charlie Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw that image in your essay and I just died laughing. I was like, so true. Yeah, and it's, it's literally the line from Rossum's universal robot, you know, where we get the word mm. robot from, what is the most effective worker? The one with the least number of parts. Mm-hmm. So any, uh, any opposition to Koopa's regime, such as someone singing uh, mild protest songs outside yeah. gets turned from a thinking emotive human being into a biological robot that can only serve its master. Mm-hmm. Capitalism. Yay. 
There are a couple of other cinematic uh, kind of genealogies here that I think we could trace out very quickly if yeah. we want to keep talking about the formal elements of this. And these these are two <laughs> two big movies that we're going to have to talk about. We're going to have to talk about Jurassic Park and we have to talk yep. about Ghostbusters. Both of which oh, yeah. I, both of which I would maintain are essentially neoliberal in character in a way this movie is not. Yeah, uh, I agree completely. Ag- agreed on both <laughs> on both points. Uh, Ghostbusters is literally about the privatization of like the the, the public commons, mm-hmm. where the EPA is the biggest villain. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, let's ignore the fact that the EPA guy was right. <laughs> right. True uh, hero. I, I will never forget the the line. I've worked in the private sector. They expect results. I'm like, <laughs> firstly, that's just a lie. That's just that's just a lie. Yep. Uh, but no, Ghostbusters politically almost antithetical to this, but like stylistically and aesthetically has an awful lot in common with it, uh, and it's tied up in the kind of like slapstick elements, particularly. I think. Yeah, there's there's slapstick. There's like this sort of working class element to it. You know, plumbers versus exterminators. There's also like the the greebled sci-fi technology aesthetic shows up in both of these shows. Yeah, yeah. And with and, and both have like there's some science, but there's also a lot of like mystical magic hand wave stuff. It, yeah, we go. Oh, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's magic. It's a demon. It's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> It's 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 this very '90s and, and this spilled into the aughts like desire to, oh well, okay, okay, he's not magic. He's just using space physics or whatever, right? Like it's like no, this stuff is magic. We can move on now. <laughs> and the, the Jurassic Park too. Like the reason Yoshi looks the way Yoshi does is because Jurassic Park came out a few years earlier and was very successful. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, you know, that has like the sort of the bene- the uh, beneficent. Rich man will will save the world and provide wonder, mm-hmm. and, and then it all goes wrong, ironically, because of greed. Um, yeah, but the uh, Yoshi is so fascinating because that is a great goddamn puppet, and it is so yep. off-putting. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's so, so weird. weird because you go, hang on, that looks amazing, and it it, it sort of completely breaks your own involvement with the film because the well, effect is the effect is in some ways too good for the film that it's in mm-hmm. yeah yep. and it's like and then it forces you to sympathize with this poor like pet dinosaur because it's it's kept chained up all day and it's like yeah ch- chained up and tortured and tortured and it's just like oh wow themes do we have Absolutely. any 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 final formal points before we wrap up the formalism zone and go into the the morass of discourse that awaits us uh the music selection Ooh, yes, yes. Talk Baby's to us fir- about the soundtrack. Baby's first New Wave album. <laughs> <laughs> Just like it's Baby's first cyberpunk. I had this soundtrack on cassette. Uh, that I Amazing. listened because we didn't have a we didn't have a tape player, but my mom was a medical transcriptionist, so I used her transcription machine to listen to it. That is incredibly cool. And again, the things clashing into this movie are like, okay. This is based on a video game. We want it to appeal to kids. We should we should uh, get an original song by Roxette. <laughs> kids are gonna love it. Uh, also, the rest of the score is done by Alan Silvestri, and I'm sort of like, 
Mm-hmm. Hang on, what? Uh, Alan yeah. Silvestri, who's done like scores for some of the biggest Hollywood blockbusters of like the last 30, 40 years. The man and who wrote the Captain America March, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, d- did the Guardians of the Galaxy theme, did like any any big picture of like the last, yeah, the last 20 or 30 years, It's it's been an Al- Alan Silvestri number. Well, and he just uh, pops up doing this. And also like they're like, when... The Mario Brothers are trying to hide with the Goombas in the elevator. Uh, a polka starts playing, yeah. <laughs> and oh, they distract yeah. them by like waltzing. But also when uh, when Lena is doing her like best evil stepmother impersonation to Daisy, and is like showing her all of her mother's beautiful things that you you could never have, and like suddenly like, there are all these like Hungarian strings starting, like it's Young mm-hmm. Frankenstein. <laughs> It's amazing. It's completely unhinged. <laughs> Such a my my last formalism zone point kind of is an attempt to try and tie all these things together. And a lot of people approach this movie like it's some kind of aberration in what Super Mario is conceptually. That this movie was kind of like a, a mistake that fell off the wagon of Super Mario. But it's I I kind of completely and wholesale reject that because like even even with like the bizarre score choice. The, the polka, the new wave, the, the, all of this, like, music. Like, so when uh, Nintendo first wanted to create Super Mario, it wasn't Super Mario, it was Popeye. Popeye the Sailor Man. Uh, except for, at the time, Nintendo wasn't a big enough company to get the rights for Popeye the Sailor. So Shigeru Miyamoto was like, oh, fuck it, we can't get Popeye the Sailor. Uh, what's another masculine working class job that's kind of wet? I don't know, a plumber? Good, <laughs> ship it. Like, and then we get Super Mario. You know, we could be living in a world where Super Mario didn't exist and there was like a one-off title for a bad Popeye game. Or we got Cyberpunk Popeye. <laughs> His arms that big because of spinach to get strength. But I think that just that just goes to highlight like this has always been a big soupy mishmashed mess of a, of a franchise if we want to use that modern parlance. There's quite simply nothing to save here. This is Mario is post salvage. Yeah, there's no there's no like original core, right? That you can yeah. kind of like pull out. It is all that it is. It is this kind of like uh kind of morass, this this set of uh Mario is a rhizome. That's what we're saying, right? That's <laughs> <laughs> You're you're right. Super Mario is essentially the same as HP Lovecraft's mythos. You're completely correct. <laughs> So where is Mario at the Mountains of Madness? <laughs> the the Mariotans of Madness. <laughs> I th- I think we wrap up the formalism zone here, frankly, and oh dear, and move into uh, the discourse tower. And on the first level of the discourse tower, John, I believe that we should talk a little bit about family history, um, because I know you have some stories about this film. And I would love for you to share them. Okay, so growing up, uh, I did not know who my dad was, and my mom refused to tell me. Uh, She simply said, oh, I wanted a kid, so I went to a sperm bank. I believed that for a while. One day, we are at an early showing of the Super Mario Brothers movie, (laughs) and a character appears on screen, to which my mom shouted in the theater, that's your no good goddamn father. Amazing. I then had to go get my cheek swabbed because he owed thousands in back child support. But we didn't get any because it turns out 
being a moderately successful 80s musician does not translate to sales. So yes, <laughs> I am the son of Toad. <laughs> Mojo Nixon, the same guy who wrote Burn Down the Malls. So I guess I come to this naturally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but uh, the thing is, whenever I tell that story to people, I get exactly three reactions. One, who the fuck is Mojo Nixon? <laughs> Two, oh my God, I can't believe that. And three, do you mean to tell me he has another kid out there? <laughs> that, th that third reaction is is the one that uh, probably comes up more than people would expect. <laughs> Touring musicians are just bastions of decency and chastity, I guess. <laughs> Uh, I, I've, I've got to be honest. I think that's a, that is that's a genuinely incredible way of uh, of of kind of of like ha forming this familial connection through the silver screen, uh, made even better by involving Mojo Nixon. Um, and I, I uh, yeah, I, I think that's a, that's an that's an amazing story and a very cool story. Uh, and also must make watching this film feel very strange on a personal level. Um, in one particular level, just because I noticed that when I'm either like emceeing or giving a stump speech, I have his exact same cadence. Mm -hmm. And that worries me. <laughs> <laughs> on the upside, I've seen pictures of him at 60, so I'm not going to lose my hair. Oh, okay. Well, there we go. Okay, that's pretty <laughs> ideal, though. I mean, it, you've got that going for you. Yeah. And I, I also wanted to talk a little bit about the essay that you have written about this film. Um, I, the essay, manifesto, landmark work of critical theory, uh, great work of leftist cultural analysis. Cooperism is capitalism. Um, tell us about the essay. L like, lay it out for us. Well, it, you know, the title is based on Fordism is fascism um, mm -hmm. because I'm annoying. And I, <laughs> I start out just by saying, like, this is a ridiculous movie, but we live in ridiculous times. And, you know, having a, an eccentric, oglyarchal, nar narcissist uh, ruler with weird blonde hair who's trying to manage an empire in the middle of collapse kind of feels it hits different now. Yeah, a few things have changed. <laughs> right. But... And so we have we have the de-evolution de process, which is what was used to turn the old king of Dino Hatton into this fungus that just spreads everywhere and is no longer sentient. And you have the de the devolution that creates the Goombas, which who turn them into like mindless workers for uh for the Cooper Empire. But there's also an evolution button. <laughs> <laughs> and when Koopa's two uh moronic bungling uh, uh, sons, Iggy and Spike, who keep kidnapping the wrong woman from Earth because they can't tell Earth women apart, which is funny. They end up kin kidnapping a lot of Italian-American <laughs> princesses, which is very funny. Um, <laughs> uh, is that he forces them through evolution in order to become like smarter and better at their jobs. And then they immediately call him an, a, the oppressor of the proletariat and a tyrant. <laughs> yep. Which is maybe my favorite moment that. in the entire film. And the thing is there exists, um, it's, it's on the super Mario brothers, like fan archive, which is like this one man's passion project to gather everything about this movie. There are cut scenes that they found footage of where Iggy and Spike are just quoting Lenin to each other. <laughs> uh, amazing. Amazing. It's like, 
it's not even like, is there a theme here? It's like, no, no. And also it's like, oh no, we, it's the sort of thing like we've educated our children or our officers too much and now they're going to tell Yeah, and us. now they're not doing as they were, t- now they're not doing as they're told. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how all bourgeois It's really, really bold start. of them to, it's really bold of them to introduce a laser into the Super Mario Brothers canon that turns people into a Leninist vanguard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, what more could you ask for, right? This is isn't 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 Marxist? Isn't class consciousness literally an expansion of consciousness? Like, wh- what what more could you ask for 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 the future of human evolution? <laughs> oh man, I do I do like the kind of like the the the, the meta commentary on their wisdom though, because they become very intellectual and and very smart, but they're still. Com- completely ineffectual at their assigned tasks. They're they're still deeply self serving and kind of bum- bungling in all their tasks. Yeah, they're not quite. Uh, not not to keep bringing Disco Elysium into this, but these are just the student communists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, that, exactly. The reading group. That's all they are. They become the reading yep. group. Yeah, like, um, they have very big words and they're very smart, but they can't seem to figure out how to make coffee. <laughs> <laughs> But you're right. You're completely right. The, the Cooperism is capitalism. They they even set this up as like, what is one of the the limits of capitalism run up against the limits of the natural world? Right. That's eventually you run out of stuff, and so mm-hmm. the the whole crux of the movie is how do you solve the problem? How do you solve the problem of infinite uh, expansion into a space which is necessarily finite? And the way that you solve that is you just we need more dimensions. We need to go to Mars. We need to like get off out of the world that we've slowly turned into like an arid desert and find new spaces to commodify. What what you do is you have to create new places to colonize and extract from via science or magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, preferably both. <laughs> and um, uh, just talking about like Koopa Tower, um, when... Hudson Yards was going up. It kept reminding me of like the half finished, half ruined Koopa Tower that starts to appear in real light world Manhattan when the universes start to merge because it looked like the entire development was just phasing in from this like other oh, hostile yeah. dimension where it had never stopped being 1992. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> because like it just looks alien. It, it was. The whole project was started in the early 90s, so it was built for a city that doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And it was hauntology. There, I've said it. We've said the H word. (laughs) (laughs) It's like they were were buildings for like a population that doesn't exist anymore. And like the phasing in of Dino Hatton with all of its, you know, cyberpunk carnivore neon culture sort of phasing into the real world was like oh that's what these people are trying to do they're trying to turn back the clock and you are completely right like all films about new york it's a film about real estate yeah it's a film about property it's a film about explicitly about property relations like my favorite Mm -hmm. my favorite kind of background detail is just like a cooper poster which says environmentalist question don't worry we'll get more (laughs) <laughs> I'm like I'm like that's that's the logic here. That's the Cooperism mm-hmm. is extractive capitalism taken to its logical conclusion, except with dinosaurs. 
Yeah, just hearing the phrase, except with dinosaurs. I've never heard that in a bad context. <laughs> I know I know. everyone inside of a movie, the last thing they want to hear is except with dinosaurs. But outside of the world of cinema, just a beautiful, beautiful phrase. Yeah. Elon Musk watches this and thinks that Don is, Dennis Hooper was doing a bang-up job. Right. And that that is something for me that kind of like... So I watched this again a couple days ago. This is, I watched this movie more than I should. But um, my last watching, like, there were aspects of it that made me kind of like, I don't know, almost like melancholic in a way. Like, there, there's, there's, there's a sorrow to this film now because we've kind of, like, gone past the moment it's satirizing and, like, it's not even satire on any level anymore. This is just like, oh, we, we lived through a, a King Koopa presidency. You know, like, we've been there, done that, and it's like... It's it's just oh my god just, and and like seeing those like political advertisements it's like I'm looking I'm looking at that and I'm like well at least he's being kind of honest about his goals and he's not like obfuscating through 19 layers I, of carbon capture politics. <laughs> I I would very much like to dig into the comparison here between uh, Cooper and mid-career Trump. Well, it, it, it's every it's down to his hair. It's everything. <laughs> he has the same speaking style. I mean, like one of the more weirder on the nose, like you would have had to have read a book about Trump in the mid 80s <laughs> to get this is when he pretends to be a lawyer working pro bono for the Mario yes, Brothers. Yes. <laughs> because Trump used to pretend to be his PR agent all the time and then named his kid after yep. his fake agent. Oh, legendary narcissism. And yeah, like, and uh, Dennis Hopper clearly knows who he's trying to imitate, and it, it doesn't sound like the Trump of today, who has like you know holes in his brain. But like you look at, you hear audio photos of like uh, audio photos. That's what television is. You hear, <laughs> oh my God. you hear speeches from Trump from like the late '80s. Like he sounds mm-hmm. like you know a doofus and a narcissist, but he sounds coherent, and he has that yeah. particular uh, speaking style. And that's Dennis Hopper in this movie. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, he's also the, the, he's the also Yeah. Yeah, he's he's a kind of he's he comes out he's a very he's a creepy dude. He's a creepy creepy man. Uh he has his his weird obsession with fast food. In this he's constantly he's always mm-hmm. ordering a pizza. <laughs> yep. Well, one of the things that I find to be really striking is is like you know like we we're, I think we're like the New York stamp on on this movie is like arguably a more powerful influence on the text than the super mario brothers are um because like looking at king koopa in the games like not really much of a character pretty much just a prop for the vast majority of the titles except except for super mario brothers rpg where we learn that king koopa's actually a kind of like he he's a he's like a leninist dictator you know he, he's he's an authoritarian. He is in total total control. He will execute his underlings that that disobey his command. But he's 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 been led to this kind of place of of corruption by a genuine desire to like help his troops in quotes. Like he's always talking about like he he wants to help the Goombas. He wants to see to see the Koopas on top again. And there's a kind of like there's like this kind of like Leninist vanguardy thing that's in the Bowser from SMRPG, and I think it's such an interesting contrast to put that next to like this this very clear mid career Trump King Koopa. 
Yeah, I know, because like he's clearly only out for himself because like they've as they say, they've run out of water and air. And he expressly says he, only he and maybe his like army wants to travel into Manhattan and take it over. And oh, mm. we forgot to mention, turn all the humans back into monkeys. Uh, yes. <laughs> yep. He's got big old uh, de-evolution guns, which um, uh, we, we have spent far too little time talking about what the plan is here. But the plan is basically like magic colonialism. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Resource extraction. <laughs> and it's just like if you put the colonialism gauze onto it, it's like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna turn all the residents of the humans into monkeys. It's like, well, that's awfully sounds like the language of a colonial violence, or as your prince John would say, chess pieces. Yeah, mm. yes. <laughs> <laughs> like it's literally dehumanizing. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, so, like, to, as, to, as we're to, saying, to like, point. there's no metaphor here anymore. <laughs> yeah, and, and, to, and to this point, there's a line really early in the movie when we first meet King Koopa that that, that I, I was just fascinated by in my last watch through. Koopa is talking about the human world, non-Dino Manhattan, as as having stolen all their resources and kind of banished them to this underworld, which which is just not true. It was a freak accident from a meteor, right? It's a natural catastrophe that caused this this situation. It wasn't like humans banished the dinosaurs to an underrealm. But what I think is really interesting about that is we see that linguistic turn all the time. King King Koopa is using this kind of progressive language to cloak and hide his kind of like ultra white right wing colonialist plans. You know, he's 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 talking about like, oh well, we need to. We need to return to a more bucolic, natural environment, you know, and like like he's borrowing a lot of like progressive and forward thinking language to to it just it just literally sounds like like something the Biden administration would say about a plan to like sell Yosemite National Park to a fracking company. Or like we have to be like more humane through immigration procedures, and that's why the kids go back in cages. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're they're not they're not cages. They're 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 modular micro housing systems. Yeah, uh, which is what the police in this have. They they literally it's described as a chicken coop. Uh, yeah. Like I, I, you you completely right. There is no subtext here. Like in a, in a way, it's a film that's too incoherently honest because it was made basically by committee and often committees at loggerheads with one another. So there is no kind of like singular vision that kind of. Uh, obscures some of the some of the kind of subtextual elements behind artistic intent. It's all just text. It's all just out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and while like all this very interesting stuff, you know, in production design and music design and costume design and all these weird political undertones and overtones, you still have people like making cartwheel jokes and sl- uh, pratfalls and women talking like this. <laughs> yeah uh yeah absolutely uh you you have you have mario saying that he was gonna take his girlfriend to wrestlemania like, like let's you know King. It's, King. where trump would later end up yes right absolutely. oh jesus christ is this, is this like did, did someone just really just find like a book of nostradamus's final predictions and turn that into the super mario brothers movie or is that was really it, what we're watching or was it a filmmaker who got Biff Tannend a newspaper from 2017. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. There, there are this movie, this, it's like a, it's like the uh 
the nuclear waste container thing. Like this movie is a warning and a series of warnings. <laughs> there are two things that I think we should talk about first. Uh, first, I'm I would be very curious to know: is plumbing a superpower? Yes. Yes. Next question. <laughs> no. So, so okay, this is something that I think is really worth unpacking. Right, because you know, in, in the formalism zone, I talked about why the Mario Brothers are plumbers. They, they just, we, we needed a, a slightly moist, masculine job. You know, sailor was taken. What else do we have? Plumber. You know, that's the, that's the only other run, really. I mean, like maybe everything else is on a boat. Um, but like I think it, it works so well because they like they're vilified because they're plumbers. It's not like when, when they're when King Koopa when they escape King Koopa the first time and they're trying to catch him. King, King Koopa puts out an, an all-points bulletin for plumbers. And the cops are scouring the street looking to catch some plumbers. Not humans, not Italians, not Marios. They're looking for plumbers. Yeah, and, and their they... plumbing skills, uh, uh, just, just really quick, their plumbing skills save the day multiple times. Like, it is because they are plumbers. Like, that is the core skill set that makes them good at this. And the thing that, like, identifies them as plumbers is that they're carrying plumbing tools. And I was just like... Mm-hmm. It, this is like the Dino Hatton version of being seen with like a, a silenced revolver. Yep. <laughs> like like plumbing tools are a probable cause. Trying to fix something is a sign that you're a problem. And and I think it's like it, it's so fascinating too because like w- one thing that we talk about a lot in the show is in a lot of horror movies the hero is um, like an off duty cop or an investigator or some kind of FBI agent. Like a lot of horror movies, that's kind of the stock hero. And I think one of the reasons why policing is linked to heroism and horror, I mean, obviously, propaganda and a bunch of other things, but also, like, what are some of the kind of, like, common common cultural conceptions of police? They can go anywhere and enter any building without, like, any questions asked of them. And there, we, we kind of understand a general competency and trustworthiness. That's definitely not true. Um, and we, we also understand, which also not true, a, a kind of, like useful skill set for heroism right like you know like you know cops are like you know they're all john mcclain right you know even even when they're they're down and out they're ready for like just just unbridled action but in this it's plumbers and i love that because plumbers have all those traits but they honestly have them plumbers can enter any fucking building and no one's going to ask a goddamn question because they're a plumber they're here to plumb you know they also have like incredibly useful skill sets that are suited well for action and like, like they, they have like the same kind of like rugged, gritty quality that would be so well poised for this. And what I'm saying is, why are there no plumbing noir stories? <laughs> well, there is one. There's this. <laughs> well, like, the, the other thing I would say, and this um, relates <laughs> to the story, is that their plumbing skills come in handy so often because the entire city is falling apart. So they're able to like redirect mm, yes, steam yes, vents and repipe things and fix things or like um, adapt them to different uses because no one has bothered to fix anything in, you know, the 10 million years they've been there or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. You like isn't this this has got this has got the this has got the, the narrative structure of a film noir, right? You have crumbri- crumbling infrastructure. You have uh uh they, there's a love interest that has to be rescued. There is like a a down on his luck outsider to the system. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is this is there's a femme noir. fatale with amazing. There is hair. a femme fatale. Like oh, yeah. it all works. 
Oh my god. Um, I'm, I'm uploading my Super Mario Femme Fatale Noir to my holodeck right now. This is going to be amazing. Uh. Oh dear. Oh dear. The life we lead. The life we lead as podcasters. Weaving, weaving these beautiful worlds. Turning straw into gold. There is... Turning fungus element. into a king. There is... Uh, <laughs> I, I, you, you, you said it, John. This is now where we have to talk about fungus but this is now where we have to start talking to the mildew in the shower this is now where we have to <laughs> get in to the mycelium um ash as the, as a resident uh mycologist of the show you have you've got to have takes here so so before before i jump into my my fungal takes um dear listeners i i know that some of you might be listening to this episode right now looking at the mildew in your very own shower and for less than the cost of having a plumber come remove that mildew, you can support our show on patreon.com slash horrorvanguard or www.horrorvanguard.com. And we'll grow on you like so many types of fungi would. <laughs> there, we're getting smoother by the minute with these. Okay, yeah, so so hang on, I gotta, gotta go to my notes really quick here. I sent my fungi takes. <clears throat> Um, so, like, I think there's a lot that's about fungi in the Super Mario Brothers movie and Mario Brothers in general, but really in this movie that I, I super enjoy. And that's fungi stays gross as hell. Like, it's never sanitized or clean, right? You, I mean, like, one of my favorite lines comes from King Koopa. And, and he says, you know what I love about mud? It's clean and it's dirty at the same time. You know, like, like he's talking about goo and ooze and it, like, it has both of those properties and like King Koopa's just fucking disgusting, or not King Koopa? I'm, I'm sorry, um, the, the the King of the Mushroom Kingdom, right? Like Daisy's father, he's like this pulsating sack that throbs in and out of this like cocoon of slime. It's like the grossest imaginable thing, and he's like he's the penultimate good guy. He's 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 the benevolent king, Arthurian king of the Mushroom Kingdom, and like. That on on its own is fantastic, but like this is we have like a vision of like a fungal utopia, like like the seed of like this, this fungal utopia here, uh, because like the the fungi isn't one. It's the hero, like the, the Mario Brothers don't save the day. The the rot pervasive throughout all of the Mushroom Kingdom does. You know, yeah, like it's trust, constantly trying trust to hand the them. fungus. Trust the yes. fungus. Yeah, it, it's the it fungus their... that gives. Uh, Luigi, uh, the bomb, and I gotta say, giving yes. two Italians a bomb to take down a tyrant. Yeah, it's happened before, <laughs> and it's it's always gone well. <laughs> so, like, like one of the things that I find fascinating about the fungus here is that, like, you, the king has to get transformed into like like there's kind of like the, this capitalistic teleology of evolution, right? That evolution is a linear process. And we, we start at kind of like zero. We start at the zero point that's villainous and bad and and kind of useless. And we're progressing towards something that is perfected, right? That that is that is better than everything around it. But it's the the king is only capable of saving the kingdom when he returns to the fungal, right? When he returns to his like base nature, when he becomes the thing that he always was. Right. So it's this it's this process of de-evolution. It's this process of like degrowth that's like necessary in the salvation of this world. And uh, as I wrote in my essay, like the metaphor for the fungus is also like sort of the metaphor of the underground. 
And, mm, uh, like, yep. There's this entire network that you did not know was there and has been, been quietly waiting for its time to strike. Yeah, what we could call a left mycology. <laughs> yeah, and all we have to do is yes, wait, for the, you know, wait for the right weather conditions and suddenly there are, you know, fly aspects everywhere. Yeah, it's it's this perfect blend of like fungi. Fungi are defined both by a, a pervasive organized networking that is happening in ways we can't understand. You know, you know, like the wood wide web is a great example of this. But it's also totally spontaneous. Fungi just erupt when the conditions are right. They're everywhere and then they are gone. You know, they they have both the organized principal qualities of of like a Leninist vanguard. And the spontaneity to, to make their presence felt in the world of something more anarchistic, right? Like, there's a lot to draw from that. Yeah. Well, this is this is the psychedelic element of it, right? Trust the fungus. It's like, it's an alteration of consciousness, right? It's about uh, understanding the uh, latencies and possibilities which lie kind of uh, unexcavated in the ruins of modernity itself. There is this kind of... Uh, vegetals excess that can kind of spring forth um i think i think this is it's a very kind of moving political metaphor that the film closes on right Tr have have faith in what you cannot see uh the seeds the seeds the spores of revolution are all around you if you have the eyes to see it one day the king will return by your side exactly <laughs> and i think i mean like the psychedelia element i, I think is like it's important, I think, to like really tease that one out because, like, like, like this is Amanita uh, muscaria, right? Like, that's the mushroom from Super Mario Brothers. The the red cap with the little speckled white dots all over it. You know, it's it's one of the more dangerous options, and it can kill you. But it is a psychedelic mushroom. I note for clarity, it cannot kill you because it's psychedelic. It can kill it can kill you because it's just literally poisonous. But it also has psychedelic components in it. Caveat over. But like. Super Mario Brothers is now like deeply woven into drug culture. Like like it, it is it is like Mario iconography is all over the place when it comes to psychedelia. Even even like psychedelics that are like almost like unrelated to to the cultural product itself, right? Like it's all over like LSD and things like that. And and I think like there's this almost like a case study for like a really positive interaction with psychedelia broadly that that could be could be approached and could be especially i think more importantly utilized as like this cultural precursor to like broader acceptance and legalization and those things because like this is a positive children's story about tripping out and saving your friends because you tripped out it's because mario contacts the fungus that he's able to save the day right and like it's it takes the form of like a fairy tale or a children's story Granted, one that's full of uh, spikes and smokes and uh, people devouring lizards and drinks. It's like a Brothers Grimm, you know. <laughs> are there are there any any final points that we want to bring out of this? Well, uh, John, do you want to talk uh, uh, about a different approach to this being a bad movie? I think I, I made my I, I made my Sontag case beforehand with Camp and like. And actually watching it as, a, as an adult, because I saw it a couple times as a kid, weirdly enough, it got me interested in biology. Like my first career was going to be a biologist. So thanks, movie. <laughs> <laughs> then I found out like the only people making bank in biology are like trying to come up with new patentable drugs that are more expensive. And I went, not doing that. 
Yeah. Uh, no, not quite. No, it's like what I really appreciated this time is how is actually like the humor, like the slapstickiness of it. And like Bob Hopkins, despite the fact that he very much hated being on this film, like does some real old fashioned three stooges shit. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's there's totally. some quality shtick in this, isn't there? Right, and you know, there's the there's the what is it? When uh the captured Brooklyn girls try to escape, they have to escape like down a an iced tunnel. With a, <laughs> yeah. Oh my on god. A, on a mattress, it's a sleigh ride to freedom. And uh, again, I just want to say Fiona Shaw, one of the great British stage actresses is always down for this kind of shit. Like she has been in true blood. She's in Killing Eve. If she's in that terrible Gormenghast adaptation, if she has the option to say soon the universe will be mine, she will sign on. A hundred percent. The weight having both her and uh, Morton and Hopkins on this movie is what makes it feel so surreal because when the movie's just them, it's like you're watching like a Derek Jarmond movie. <laughs> But, you know, for oh, kids. I love that. Yeah, it's a Derek Jarman cyberpunk dystopia. But, you know, for, for, for kids. For kids who grew up in Brooklyn. <sighs> oh, dear. So, so John, could you remind our listeners where they can find you on on the worldwide dino web? <laughs> dino web. Um, uh, my website is levittalone.com, L-E-A-V-I-T-T, alone. Same word on Twitter for however long that lasts. It may be gone by the time this comes out. <laughs> Dino uh, Twitter is going to phase in. Oh, and it's did be you all notice? Gone. Did you notice one of the food carts in Dino Hatton is selling fried tweeters? <laughs> oh, no. My eyes just This movie did predict that. everything. It, again, so... The director or one of the writers accidentally got a newspaper from 2017, wrote this <laughs> as a warning, and as a series of warnings. That that feels like some kind of Greek curse. You can warn the future and, and give it the instructions for salvation, but you have to make a bad children's movie as the only vehicle you can send the message in. No, I, I think it's a good children's movie because children need to know about um, Leninism. They need to know about <laughs> they need to know about evolution. They need to yep. know about mm-hmm. a good fashion design, and they need to know no, totally. about was not was. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The, all the principles that will will help you grow up, well adjusted, well adjusted, and like fully committed to the class war. Like that's 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 all you need. I'm just asking that the class war have like this kind of fashion, like more spikes. <laughs> more spikes. <laughs> Oh, well, we've had fun. We've had fun here today discussing the Super Mario Brothers movie before before the new one, which I, in my heart, feel will be infinitely worse, uh, comes out in theaters. Yeah. Any, and, any parting parting thoughts or commentary? Uh, just that, like, the existence of the new movie is going to cause every DVD version of this movie to dissolve. I'm sure they have that. <laughs> I'm sure they have that capacity at Disney. Oh yeah, yeah, they could they could do whatever evil that they needed to accomplish. The 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 evil evil copyright process spreads like a negative fungus through the it, land. It, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. Well, thank you everyone uh for carrying your sacred meteorite shards to the podcasting crater and joining us for this lecture on plumbing procedures and anti-fascism. <laughs> uh, we, we look forward to you joining us next time. And make sure to check out check out John's article on this. We'll link to it in the show notes. 
visit the website, follow us all on Twitter until Twitter is destroyed. And uh, we will uh, hopefully all meet again in the giant mycological network when the great de-evolution ray hits us all. (laughs) What a way to go. (laughs) We hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.